Hello and welcome to episode 21 of the Violet Podcast. In this episode, we'll be continuing our series on the culture wars and looking at two distinct but closely related topics. Firstly, immigration to the UK and attitudes towards immigrants and immigration. And secondly, attitudes towards Islam and British Muslims. We realise these are controversial topics, so please do get in touch with us uh, with your thoughts on the podcast via all the usual channels through Twitter to at underscore the violet underscore uh, via email to contact.theviolet at gmail.com or through our website www.theviolet.net. We hope that every episode adds some sort of insight to these controversial topics. So if you agree with us that we've said something of value, please do help us by sharing or recommending the podcast to anybody you can. Thanks for tuning in and we hope you enjoy the episode. So just to remind our listeners, uh, culture wars happen uh, when what it means to be part of a culture starts to change, or the definition uh, of a culture within a society begins to change. And within a culture war, we can broadly delineate two sides. Uh, Progressives, who are those championing a new definition or a new characteristic within that culture, and traditionalists who believe that the old ways, however those should be defined, uh, must be defended. And immediately, this does show us why progressive movements tend to be more fractured, more splintered, uh, and they have more infighting, because views on what a culture should look like uh, when it's not already in that state tend to diverge more than views on what a culture already is. Although, of course, there are disagreements between people on what elements of a culture are traditional and should be preserved. And in this framework of viewing culture wars as disagreements about what it means to be part of a culture, who is part of a culture, uh, and what the values of that culture are, it's easy to see how immigration poses a difficult problem. Because immigration means that people from a different cultural group, who presumably have different cultural characteristics, different cultural values and practices, are now part of the polity and now part of that uh, country. And and there is then a problem faced as to whether they change their cultural practices to become more like the uh, new country they've joined, whether the country changes its cultural practices to be more like them, or whether we have a multicultural society in which not everyone within that polity is part of the same cultural group. And this then raises um, some further questions which we'll try our best to answer in this podcast episode. Firstly, should we allow immigration at all? So in a previous episode, we've already dealt with economic questions about immigration, uh, but here we're discussing in greater depth the cultural question. So is cultural homogeneity uh, the the condition where everyone within a polity follows roughly the same culture? Uh, is that important? Um, is that something which is necessary for a, for a political entity to survive? Secondly, if we should allow immigration, should immigration be focused on or only allow those who are already culturally similar uh, to the polity which they are joining, or should we allow immigration from all kinds of different cultural backgrounds? And finally, if we allow immigration, should immigrants have to assimilate or accept the existing prevailing traditional culture within the polity that they're immigrating to, uh, or are they at liberty to retain their own cultural beliefs and actions and practices? And regardless of what your position on this is, those last two questions beg further questions about what are the important parts of a culture. So when we're judging who is culturally similar or what the important uh, practices and values of a culture are that immigrants might need to assimilate, might need to adopt, um, we need to think about what those cultural traits are. What's most important to us? Is it religion? Is it morality? Is it food? Is it ethnicity? Is it language? Um, And these are the sort of debates around which the immigration part of the culture war is being fought and which we're going to try to answer in this episode. So to deal with the first point, um, that immigration changes the cultural makeup of a policy, we have to consider, is that a problem? What are the pros and cons? Should we care whether immigration changes the cultural uh, definition of a hypothetical policy, or as we're discussing more precisely here, the British state. 
We have already discussed the economic benefits of immigration before, so I would advise listeners who haven't already to, to go back to episode 17. Um, but there is there is clearly no economic argument against uh, against immigration per se. Uh, again, here we're focusing on the, the cultural issue. The idea of cultural homogeneity, it, it must be said, is something of is something of a myth. Um, it's not something which has existed in British society or the British nation or any national society since time immemorial. Uh, every culture, nation, identity is composed of multiple waves of change, um, immigration, assimilation, uh, and and a blending of different cultures. If we think about the the English culture. Uh, it's a blend of the well, the native Breton cultures, and then the Angles, the Saxons, the Jutes, the Danes, um, the French, the Normans, many different waves of migration, which have all contributed to what is seen as English or, or British identity. Uh, and before the 18th or the 19th century, this idea of nation states wasn't really seen as particularly important. What was more important was loyalty to a local political figure, uh, a baron, a lord. Uh, a king, an emperor, rather than belonging to a specific cultural nation. Uh, And that's really something that only started to become important in ideas of statehood and identity and belonging from the 19th century onwards. And the idea that that at some point in the past there were culturally homogenous, stable societies is, is a myth, because naturally, even if there is no immigration whatsoever, People have different ideas. People's practices change. Um, even in the, say, the 15th and 16th centuries in the UK, without anything uh, approaching the levels of immigration we have today, the spread of Protestantism into the UK caused huge upheavals in society. Um, there, there is no such thing as a society that you can insulate from immigration and have as an eternally culturally pure monolith um, because change happens in societies and cultures naturally over time. So yes, it is true that immigration will change the cultural makeup of a polity, but this is not inherently an issue in itself. In fact, if we if we look at this from a more theoretical angle, having different cultures and different beliefs and different practices is probably more likely in the long run to lead to liberal institutions, because if you have a large number of views and practices and beliefs, you have to accommodate them in order to have stability. Um, And this creates a more liberal society where discussion is prized and debate is prized uh, and there are mechanisms for resolving conflicts and disagreements without recourse to violence. Whereas if you look around the world, in countries which tend towards cultural homogeneity, um, you are much more likely to see examples of authoritarianism. So the largest example we can probably point to is China, but this also takes place uh, on, on a smaller scale um, there are some sub-Saharan African monarchies, like Eswatini, for example, um, where well, it is effectively an authoritarian monarchy uh, with a very tight grip trying to retain that traditional culture. And to some extent, this is a chicken and an egg problem, because we could argue that cultural homogeneity leads to authoritarianism equally. Uh, we could argue that cultural homogeneity is something which is imposed and enforced by authoritarian political systems. Um, but there is no argument really to suggest that cultural, uh, you know, cultural differences and cultural variety is something which leads to a society being unstable. In fact, if you correlate um, multiculturalism with economic wealth and political stability, you're more likely to see the opposite correlation. And that answer sort of heads off the second question that we raised as well, which is, given that we're allowing immigration into the country, should we favour more culturally similar immigrants? Um, And as Jerome said, having a multicultural society, having a wealth of different cultures and opinions and views within a society, within a polity, is not a bad thing um, and is actually quite possibly a good thing. So to that extent, we don't need to favour culturally similar immigrants, however we might be defining culturally similar. But there is a point to make that actually immigrants might be more culturally similar than you think automatically, simply because anyone who has migrated from one country to another, uh, assuming that they're not um, an asylum seeker or a refugee or someone who has been forced out of their country, assuming that they've made this decision, they've made this choice consciously, 
they have decided that they would prefer to live in their adoptive country rather than their country of origin and therefore they have decided that life in that country is better for them than in the country they came from and so it is likely actually that immigrants uh, associate themselves with or prefer the culture they are moving to to the culture they have come from in whatever way now that's not necessarily a hundred percent true for example, many migrants uh, move between countries for economic reasons and uh, move in order to earn a higher income. And it may well be that they prefer culturally the country they have come from, but they are willing to trade that off for the increased income that they see from moving to their new country. But as I said before, that's not necessarily a problem. So the third area of concern is should immigrants have to assimilate? Assimilation is the process uh, of a person adopting, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, the cultural practices of the place which they've moved to, uh, displacing or hybridizing the cultural practices of wherever they originally came from. In terms of assimilation, forced assimilation or, or involuntary assimilation, forcing someone to adopt certain cultural practices is, is simply not okay. That is not something we should be aiming for as a liberal or tolerant society, or if we are claiming that the basis of, of British society is liberalism and, and tolerance, then this is not something that can be made compatible with forced assimilation. Some degree of, of assimilation has to, be, has to be there, has to be practical, such as learning the language, because it's very hard to, to communicate or navigate your way through British society without the English language. Uh, and this is something that, that should be encouraged, that there should be, you know, kind of um, adult uh, classes for, for learning English. But this is not something which is a massively widespread problem. 89% uh, of, of immigrants to the UK or 89% of the foreign born population in the UK uh, does speak English. And the longer someone stays in the country, overwhelmingly, the more likely it is that they pick up language simply because it is practical for them to do so. Um, and in terms of assimilating in, in, in language and picking up English, this is not something that has to come at the expense of uh, an immigrant's mother tongue. Uh, in fact, all, all kind of studies show that bilingualism or, or speaking two languages uh, does help with the development of, of a child's brain uh, in, in, the, in the formative stages of their life. So it's not as if English has to replace other languages, they can coexist, and in fact, it's good if they do. With regards to assimilation, assimilation, as, as I've noted with language, is something which does happen naturally over time. And England as a, as a policy, as a nation, as an identity, that has changed significantly over time. And historically, a, a huge amount of fuss and even you know, quite genocidal violence at times has been kicked up over different groups of immigrants to the UK who are now generally seen as accept and accepted uh, as part of a fabric of a British identity, um, such as Jewish people who, who were exiled from the UK in very bloody pogroms in the 11th and 12th centuries, uh, the Irish, Catholics in general, uh, and Protestants as well uh, at various times in Britain's history, uh, people from the, the, the Caribbean um, and you know the, the West Indies, all of those people at various times in the past, people have on the traditionalist side uh, of the so-called culture wars have made the argument that these cultures can can never be made compatible with whatever British culture or English culture was at, at the time. Uh, they can't come here, they won't fit in, they can never fit in. And clearly that has that has been shown to be demonstrably false. They, they do fit in, they have fitted in, they are now part of Britain's uh, kind of national identity. Another um, facet of assimilation that's interesting because a lot of traditionalists get very upset about this idea uh, and think of this as a problem and a lot of progressives actively celebrate it is that assimilation happens in both ways. When a large number of people from a particular culture move to another country, there is cultural exchange in both directions. And whilst that group might be the minority and it's more likely that they will experience more uh, cultural change during their time living in that country, um, cultural exchange happens in both directions. And without that kind of cultural exchange, we wouldn't have such British things as tikka masala 
or chicken chow mein or London multicultural dialect, which uh, a lot of our listeners speak but don't know what it's called. Uh, even something as quintessentially British as fish and chips is uh, a dish that was imported by uh, Portuguese Jews in the 16th century. And so it is worth pointing out to traditionalists who fret about the hybridization of British culture and the change that uh, new waves of immigration will bring to British culture and how that will ruin the culture that they grew up in, that similar worries were made by our ancestors and that a lot of the things that we cherish most about um, being British and that a lot of traditionalists champion are actually the product of that uh, cultural assimilation, cultural exchange and hybridization process. It's just that because it's happened historically, we've forgotten about it. So based on that discussion, we can draw a number of conclusions about uh, immigration and the effect of immigration on culture. One of the ones that we've been skirting around, but which hopefully listeners will have thought for themselves uh, when we've brought up some of these examples, is that the vast majority of cultural aspects don't matter. For example, uh, food is a massive part of lots of different cultures. Uh, every culture in the world that I can think of has its own a sort of cuisine, its own food traditions, uh, of which it's very proud. 99% of them are delicious, in my personal opinion. Um, and cooking the food of one's culture is a very important thing to a lot of people. But there is no reason why, as a country, we need to agree on a certain set of food principles. There is no reason why uh, the people who live next to you the people who live next door can't eat completely different food that you find disgusting uh, and you can carry on eating whatever food you like to eat. There's no friction caused there. There's no problem. There's no fracturing of society just because some people like really spicy food and others can't handle it. There's no reason why that cultural difference um, is a problem in a liberal society where people are allowed to do what they want. And I know food is the most sort of a uh, frivolous example, it's the most obvious example of something that doesn't matter. But actually this same argument can be applied to the vast majority of cultural differences. When we're talking about language or dress or music or religion, for example. Uh, the second kind of interim conclusion to draw here is that cultural boxes are largely fictitious. And obviously there are there are certain sets of, of practices and beliefs and actions, and, and they exist. Um, we're not saying that they don't. But boxing them off into discrete categories which don't interact with each other, that is a fiction. Um, because cultures, beliefs, practices change over time, uh, and if you draw a, a line around a certain set of those things, you may well find, or you probably will find, more differences within that line or within that box uh, than you might find between someone who is in another um, arbitrarily drawn box because they do meld and they do change and they do interact uh, and affect each other over time. And, uh, and to return to an earlier point that cultural or ethnic homogeneity uh, does not equal political stability, if you look at a country like Somalia, for example, which is one of the most ethnically homogenous societies uh, or states in the world. Um, that's been in a state of civil war and conflict for, for decades. And we can see there that disputes are something which don't just arise from cultural differences, uh, and nor is cultural homogeneity uh, a panacea for, for strife and violence uh, and political dispute. Something that we haven't really talked about so far in this episode, but which follows on from uh, our discussions about tolerance and intolerance from a couple of episodes ago, is that when it comes to uh, deciding as a country on cultural norms and cultural practices, actually what matters really from a liberal moral point of view is that people are free to choose their own cultural practices and that those cultural practices aren't enforced upon them. And certainly in our view, often the problem with both progressives and traditionalists putting forward their arguments in, in this culture war about what British culture should be is not that their ideal of what British culture is is 
is particularly wrong or is, is different to ours, um, but merely the fact that people are trying to impose their idea of what it means to be part of that culture on other people and that every individual should be free to define their cultural affinity in their own way. What it means to be British to any individual Briton is what it means to be British to that individual Briton. And nobody else has the right to impose their idea of cultural, the correct cultural practice on that person, even if their idea of cultural practice uh, is one I agree with or, or not. That doesn't make the difference. That doesn't make any difference. It's the seeking to impose it that is more of a problem than the definition itself. And so when we're talking about cultures, immigration, multiculturalism, most cultural issues are simply non-issues. They, they don't matter. The only real complication comes where there are moral judgments um, that, need, that need to be couched uh, within the language of law that need to, that need to be made binding, um, and therefore they need to be agreed upon. And this doesn't cover all moral judgments. For example, someone might believe that it's moral or ethically right or, or incumbent upon them to, to pray a, a certain number of times a day, and that's a moral judgment that doesn't really affect anyone else. So that's not something which should, uh, which should come under the banner of law and legis legislation. Um, but there are moral arguments which, which need to be couched in law. Something like, for example, the... Um, the, the age of consent or the, the age at which marriage should be legal, uh, those may be moral judgments which people disagree upon. It is something that needs to be legally standardised. So in these areas, yes, there there is a bigger challenge with multiculturalism and immigration in that different cultures in that sense must be made compatible because those are things which must be standardised uh, in the eyes of the law. When we talk about immigration to the UK, the two main immigrant groups in the UK are Eastern Europeans and South Asians. And within the South Asian immigrant diaspora, you obviously have people from a huge range of different countries, uh, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka. Um, and within that, you also have a huge number of different religions, Hindus, Sikhs, uh, and Muslims. For traditionalists in the culture war, uh, Islam has a, has a specific place, I guess, uh, as, a, as a unique threat to British identity. Uh, and it's, it's often argued that Islam is uniquely dangerous to British identity. Uh, unlike other religions of, of immigrants to the UK, uh, Islam is seen as uniquely dangerous. And for that reason, uh, the rest of this episode will be focused more specifically on the cultural battleground about Islam, Islamophobia, uh, and Muslims in the UK. In the case of Islam and Muslims, of course, as we said previously, groups are not monoliths, not all Muslims believe the same thing. Um, but by virtue of belonging to a particular religious identity, people usually share not just a set of cultural beliefs, but a specific set of moral beliefs. Although, uh, again, there may be variation between individuals. Um, and that's what makes this a particularly interesting case or something that's worth unpacking. Because within those moral codes, there are things which may contradict with stated traditional British beliefs. Uh, and there is then a, a more interesting argument about whether or not um, they have to be made compatible in what areas and how that should be done. And it's worth noting that while there is a sensible discussion here about uh, different cultural and religious conceptions of, of morality and how to legally pull these together into a functioning state, there are also lots of very silly face value criticisms of uh, Islam in general and in the way in which Islam can or cannot fit into British society. So we're going to go through a few arguments that are often put forwards um, for the sake of digging up how much sort of uh, truth or interest there is behind each one uh, or for dispelling those that don't make any sense. So the first traditionalist argument uh, against um, Muslim immigration to the UK is often they are building mosques, they are they are taking over British architecture, they are converting churches and other buildings in, into into mosques and Muslim places of worship. Um, and th there's been loads of controversy about this, not just in the UK, but uh, in in much of the West um, more, more generally. Uh, and recently, to to pick on a specific local example, 
in Golders Green in North London, uh, there's been a, a long-running movement to convert uh, a disused hippodrome um, kind of entertainment centre in Golders Green into an Islamic centre. And this has gone through like a four-year process of really uh, inane planning objections and, and also many other objections uh, from from people saying that you know this is this is changing the character of the of the local community. Um, the kind of flippant response to this is, so what? Uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't matter if if people want to build mosques or other places of worship, or if if other buildings or, or even churches are disused. Why not convert them into you know something which is of functional use to to a part of the community? It's just like converting well, any disused building into anything else or building any other building. Uh, there's nothing special about mosques. They're not taking over uh, the country in any specific way. One, one specific variant of this argument is that Britain is a Christian country and therefore you know, other, other places of worship from other religions shouldn't be built. Um, but it's worth noting two points here. Firstly, that Christianity itself is, is effectively an immigrant import from, from Palestine, from the Middle East. Uh, Christianity is not something that is, quote, native to the UK. Um, and secondly, that the vast majority of the people in the UK today are are non-religious, are not Christian. Uh, and a third point, really, even if you were to say that Britain is a Christian country, a Christian country of what denomination, there have been so many arguments and, and wars and extreme violence uh, in, in the UK's history between Catholics and Protestants, uh, over which is the right form of Christianity. And it's been long established as a principle in the UK that even though the Church of England is, is a state religion, that the UK is a secular country, that religion shouldn't play an overt role in politics. So really the argument that Muslims are coming and building mosques, they aren't assimilating, is, is a non-starter um, as, uh, as strongly as some people may feel about it. Do you want to guess what proportion of the UK population attends a Church of England uh, service every week? I'm going to guess 8%. 2%. 2% of the population turns out at the official state religions services every week, uh, which does beg the question of why we have a state religion, but that's another podcast for another day. A second strange objection put forward by a lot of traditionalists is towards halal meat, um, often under the fig leaf argument that halal meat is uh, somehow more cruel to animals than other forms of uh, killing. Um, as far as I'm aware, there is no evidence for this. There are plenty of examples of slaughterhouses with inhumane practices which are halal, but there are also plenty of examples of slaughterhouses with inhumane practices uh, which are not halal. Um, and whilst animal cruelty is a perfectly legitimate issue to get uh, angry about and to want to do something about, it is a problem that exists within the Muslim community and outside the Muslim community roughly equally, and uh, halal meat is itself not a problem uh, of animal cruelty. For those who have a problem with halal meat, outside of the idea of animal cruelty simply as a cultural um, difference that there is really no argument that that doesn't fit into the box of different people um, adhering to different cultural practices which have no impact on those around and uh, falling back on our tolerance episode that we've done before and the harm principle that we've talked about before there is no reason why one person's consumption of halal meat affects anybody else and therefore even if uh, you don't believe that halal meat is is different in any way even if you're not muslim there is no reason to object to someone else's consumption of it um a third quite common traditionalist argument is that muslims are bringing sharia law into the uk that they're they're seeking to impose uh, their religious structures on everyone else uh, or, or a variant of this is that um muslims are setting up no-go zones uh, in major cities where instead of British law, Sharia law is applied and enforced and if, if you're a if you're a British person you can't you can't go in there otherwise you'll be arrested and tried. Um, this is um, to deal with a specific claim, absolute nonsense. It's not true. There aren't no go zones. Um, there there are in some cities areas where you have gangs which are predominantly Muslim. Equally there are areas and cities where you have gangs which are predominantly white or black or Indian or any other ethnic group 
Um, and that's just a fact of criminal activity rather than a concerted conspiracy by Muslims to take over the UK and apply uh, their, their religious beliefs on everyone else. Um, more broadly speaking, it's worth considering that in the, in the traditionalist uh, knee-jerk conservative conception, Sharia law is specifically about very harsh punishments for very specific crimes, whereas more broadly uh, in Islam, Sharia law deals with everything which is kind of like permissible and impermissible and relations uh, between people on a very banal level, even in terms of things like exchanging goods or, or, or marriage or any other kind of interpersonal relationship or contract. Um, and in these areas, it's absolutely fine uh, for, for Muslims to conduct transactions and interpersonal relations according to their religious beliefs, just as Hindus or Sikhs or Christians or non-religious people may conduct interpersonal non-legal transactions uh, with reference to their own sets of beliefs. Uh, it's only where this would contradict with UK law that it would be an issue. And there is no evidence to suggest that Sharia courts have been set up in the UK with the purpose of undermining uh, and challenging existing British law. They simply deal with issues which are not legal issues under UK law. It's worth noting that this is a slightly different objection to the ones before, because whilst uh, people eating halal meat and building mosques is just not a problem at all, that's totally their prerogative, uh, Sharia law is, um, at least in our opinion, uh, an illiberal and unfair way of writing a legal system and would be a problem if it were happening. But it's worth noting that the issue there is with its illiberalism, not with its Islamic nature. And actually, there is a large crossover between the people who object, the people who believe that Sharia law is being implemented in the UK um, and support for the death penalty. Um, as we've discussed before in a previous episode, uh, the readership of the Daily Mail in particular is very much pro the death penalty, which is equally and equivalently illiberal um, just not couched in Muslim uh, values and Muslim terminology. It's couched in, in a sort of a, a British way of approaching things. But it's equally illiberal and equally unacceptable. Uh, a fourth common traditionalist argument is that Muslims within the UK are, are a fifth column, that they're funding and abetting and, and spreading terrorism, and that they're a danger to the UK's security uh, and to the safety of other citizens within the UK. Uh, it must first of all be said that within the UK and within, I think, pretty much every uh, Western country, white nationalist or fascist terrorism is much more prevalent, much more widespread, and is a bigger issue and a bigger threat to national security than Islamic terrorism. So, of course, we're not saying terrorism isn't a problem, but it's not a Muslim-specific problem, and there is no evidence to suggest that Muslim immigrants are more likely to commit acts of terrorism than a, a British-born citizen. The second thing I would say is that this idea that Muslims are inherently more prone to terrorism or that their culture is incompatible with British culture is an argument of the kind of Huntington clash of civilizations flavor, uh, which divides the world up into very rigid cultural blocks and says they can't coexist, they are incompatible, um, they will always clash, they are they are doomed to violence and conflict with each other. Um, and thinking in that mindset, uh, thinking that Islam or Muslim immigrants are incompatible with British society, is the flip side of the exact same coin as the, as the Islamist terrorist argument that the West and Islam are incompatible, and so Islam must overtake the West. Uh, and therefore pushing forward the argument that Muslims and Muslim immigrants are incompatible with Britain, uh, actually probably does more to push vulnerable and unstable people within the Muslim community into extreme views and extreme groups uh, than, than the opposite, which would be to say Islam is perfectly compatible with Britain, Muslims are welcome here, Muslim immigration does not pose a threat to the security of the UK. Um, and almost without exception, studies have, have shown that um, in, in terms of... What was I going to say? In terms of homegrown... Uh, sorry, in terms of, quote, homegrown terrorism within the UK, people who, who commit those acts usually come from fairly irreligious backgrounds in their youth and are then later radicalised. Those who are quite 
firmly religious uh, or, or feel a strong sense of affinity to their Muslim identity uh, in childhood often do not go down that path. And just to sort of rephrase uh, something from that, but I think it's a very important point and it's possibly worth saying twice. Um, terrorism is, regardless of where in the world it's found, regardless of which particular culture it's springing up in, and regardless of which particular ideology it's trying to push, has remarkable similarities in uh, the types of ideologies that develop terrorist movements and in the types of people who get caught up in those movements. And it always focuses around the idea that a particular uh, group of people, a particular cultural group, whether that's defined ethnically or religiously or whatever, that a particular group of people have an inalienable right to domination over others in whatever place, that a particular country belongs to a particular ethnic group, that a particular uh, that a particular area belongs to a particular religious group, whatever. But it, it revolves around the um, firm belief in the existence of boxes, as we've talked about so many times before in the podcast, the idea that the world is divided up into boxes, certain boxes belong to certain groups of people, and therefore people who are not part of that group do not belong in that box. And the reason why I'm saying this in slightly awkward sort of neutral terms is to point out that all you have to do is pop into that framework the idea that Islam is that group that we're championing that has a right to domination over everyone else or at least within a particular area um, and that other people don't have a right to life or you can pop into that box the idea that white British people have a right to the land of Britain and that no one else has a right to live here. And it's exactly the same ideology with just slightly different flavours and slightly different tweaks that grows white nationalist supremacist uh, terrorism and quote-unquote Islamist terrorism. And actually they are two sides of the same coin and really are the same um, phenomenon viewed from two different angles. And so the, the sort of sub-conclusion to draw from that, but the more important one, is that terrorism is not a Muslim problem. It is not um, the prerogative of the Muslim population of Britain to deal with terrorism and to prevent people from falling into terrorism and to, to call out extremist ideologies where they see it. It is the prerogative of, of all of us because it's equally likely to happen. In fact, it's not equally likely to happen. Um, white nationalist terrorism is now more prevalent in the UK. Um, it is incumbent on all of us to tackle those extremist ideologies where we, where we see them and where we encounter them, regardless of whether they have a white supremacist flavour, uh, an Islamist flavour, or whatever else. Um, another very common culture wars traditionalist argument against Muslim immigration to the UK is that uh, Muslims are inherently sexist, that they repress women, uh, that they do things like forced marriage, like FGM, that they force women to cover up and wear the burqa or the niqab or the hijab, um, or specifically that they that they advocate for, for child marriage and underage marriage. Um, and this is a very broad set of arguments which comes under the, gen the general umbrella of repression of women. And within the Muslim community, there are, of course, people who would advocate for these kind of things uh, and and would say, you know, these, these are moral things, these should happen. Um, our position is, of course, that these things are terrible and they should not happen. Child marriage should not happen. Forced marriage should not happen. Uh, child marriage should not happen because a child is obviously not old enough to consent. Forced marriage should not happen um, because it is, again, non-consensual. Arranged marriage is a different matter, and they are often conflated uh, in the kind of Daily Mail, um, the Daily Mail style media. Uh, arranged marriages are, you might find them alien and, and, and strange, but that's a perfectly legitimate way uh, for, for two people to, to meet. They still have a choice regarding whether or not they want to get married. It's not the same as a consensual forced, a non-consensual forced marriage. Uh, FGM is, again, just simply mutilation. There is no argument for that, cultural, religious, or otherwise. It's just bad and it shouldn't happen. Uh, and, of course, people should not be forced uh, to wear certain items of clothing against their will. However, in terms of all of these things, whilst they can be found within the Muslim community, they are not Muslim-specific issues. 
they are not things which only exist within the Muslim community. They are bad because they are, well, they, they are bad and they are illegal because they ca cause harm to individuals, uh, because they are non-consensual, because they violate the rights of individuals. They are not bad because they are Muslim and nor does their occurrence make all Muslims evil and all Muslims complicit. Uh, in the specific case of the burqa and the niqab and the hijab, of course, it's terrible to force women to wear uh, those things against their will, uh, as is the case in, for example, Iran, but equally, forced removal, as is the case in, say, Belgium or France, is, is equally bad. Um, again, coming back to that central point, they are, well, these are all issues, and they are all serious issues. They are issues because they violate the rights and the choice of individuals. They are not issues because they are, quote, Muslim things. Um, the issue is the removal of personal choice, and that is something that, of course, uh, should not be allowed in, in British law. Uh, but that is not an argument to say all Muslim immigrants are bad, uh, or that Islam is inherently more repressive than any other uh, cultural or religious grouping. I think the point to reiterate here is not to view cultures as homogenous blocks, as we've said a thousand times before on the podcast. Um, and when we're thinking about uh, cultural practices and moral values, etc., um, in every culture we will come across common practices that actually uh, don't make a lot of sense, or are illiberal, or are um, downright evil in some cases. Um, and what matters if we actually care about improving the world and making the world a better place for people rather than simply flaunting our own cultural identity and trying to fly our own flag is to call out those practices and those beliefs that are uh, incorrect or wrong or harmful wherever we see them and so whilst uh, there is no defense of FGM for example and the Muslim community needs to face up to that and a lot of people within the Muslim community need to learn that and a lot of progressives who uh, don't want, to, who are perhaps scared of criticizing such practices because they don't want to come across as Islamophobic need to realize that there is a difference between criticizing a specific action and blaming everyone within the cultural group that is more broadly associated with the action for that action. They are clearly not the same thing. And whilst these things are unacceptable, child marriage is unacceptable, forced marriage is unacceptable, that is not an argument against Islam or Muslims in general. It is an argument against those specific cultural practices. And there exist specific cultural practices which are uh, dangerous and which are damaging in just about every culture. And I think the best example of this is uh, the burqa or hijab or whatever form of covering for women, in that what matters, as we've said before, is the choice. What matters is the ability of the individual to express themselves in their own way. And we need to admit on both sides of the aisle that forcing women to cover themselves against their will is illiberal and wrong and there is no defense of it and that's no different at all to forcing women not to wear a particular garment that they wish to wear as part of their own identity and as a part of their own religion both are two sides again of the same coin they are equally illiberal and uh, accepting one and fighting the other because they come in their own cultural flavors. One is the traditional sort of um, Muslim argument and one is the traditional British argument, as it were, is no defense for either of them. Another critique of, of uh, Muslim immigration is that Islam or Muslim immigrants are intolerant of uh, the LGBT community, of, uh, of people who are not heterosexual, and... For this, the result is, is much the same as the accusations that the Muslim community is inherently sexist. Yes, there are definitely uh, a lot of people that are homophobic within the Muslim community. That is not an argument against Muslim immigration. It is not an argument against the, the Muslim community. There are specific things which we might, uh, that we might criticize or specific actions or beliefs. But again, these are 
beliefs which are part of the ongoing debate about the construction of British identity and British culture. Um, and to add to this, the idea that uh, that Muslim culture and intolerance of LGBT is inherently uh, antithetical to British culture is an argument that could really only be made for the last 40, 50 years, if that. Um, because up until the 1960s, homosexuality was illegal uh, within the UK um, and kind of full legal parity in terms of the same age of consent and the ability to, to get married was only uh, achieved over the last two decades or so. Um, so tolerance of the LGBT community is still a fairly new thing within British culture. Uh, of course, we would argue that is a good thing, but that is an ongoing uh, debate and discussion. Um, legally, of course, we should not cave into any demands that there should be different uh, legal standards or protections for LGBT people, but it is not something which makes uh, the Muslim community or Muslim immigrants uh, inherently incompatible with British culture or unable to live here. It should be obvious from that from that point that the idea that X culture is is fundamentally incompatible with Y culture, or that any particular part, any particular one practice or value within a culture is fundamentally incompatible with another, rests on the assumption that there are fundaments to cultures and that they don't change, and that what it means to be part of culture X is fixed, and what it means to be part of culture Y is fixed, and the experience of LGBT people in the UK over the last several decades shows that that is not true. And it only takes a very simple look back over not even what I would call history, because it's living memory in this country, um, to see a time when uh, being rampantly homophobic was a proud part of British culture. Um, and to see how that has changed, and again, I don't want to imply that, that we've reached perfect equality and that homophobia is not a problem in this, in this country anymore. Of course it is. But to see the extent to which that has changed over the last few decades, and then to say, well, homophobia is a big problem in another culture, uh, and therefore that culture is, is, is worth less or is, or is less worthy or, and, and cannot change in the same way that we did, is arrogant, to say the least, uh, racist to say a little more. So, to draw the big conclusions from uh, this this discussion, intercultural conversations are, are absolutely necessary, especially well, specifically about moral rules that break the harm principle. And in terms of codifying these things into law, it is vital that different communities and different cultures within the UK have these discussions. Um, this is not an argument against immigration, but it's the argument that with different cultures, dialogue is necessary, um, and where things need to be codified into law, they must be jointly agreed. And often the, the blame for the failure to do this uh, is, is placed by traditionalists on, uh, quote, ghettoized uh, Muslims who live in their own closed-off, isolated communities and don't interact with other people. Um, to some extent, this is true. Uh, another way of looking at it, which I think is probably a little more valid, is that ghettoization, so-called, is not a is not a voluntary uh, experience in a lot of cases. It's simply because throughout the UK's many waves of immigration, people tend to cluster uh, together first of all in the cheapest areas that they can get, uh, and that creates those communities, and they often find it hard to move out. Um, because of because of wealth barriers, um, but secondly, and I think more more pertinently, the the blame for a failure of a conversation also lies at the door of traditionalist white British people who fail to engage in that conversation and instead just simply say, "This is the way of doing things. There is no other option. Your culture is inferior. You can't come here, or you're not welcome here." The second big conclusion is that the majority of cultural practices are individual decisions. And where it's not necessary for a whole country to come together and agree on whether something is legal or illegal, uh, um, and uh, agree on a rule that applies to everyone, it simply does not matter if different people from different cultures in the same country adopt different languages, different styles of dress, 
uh, different cuisines, different tastes in music, etc., etc., etc. Those things simply do not matter. They are the right of the individual to express their own cultural um, affinity in whatever way they wish. And if there is no uh, sort of breaking of the harm principle, if there is no intolerant view or value or practice uh, going on, then as far as the culture wars are concerned, <laughs> the very existence of a culture war is the problem. The very existence of trying to uh, pull people around to doing cultural practices, living their lives in a certain way, is the problem. No one is in the right or the wrong in the way that they eat, the way they dress, or the music they listen to. But following on from that, actions which violate the harm principle, regardless of which community or culture is performing them, uh, actions which take away the, the, the right uh, of an individual to choose their cultural beliefs and practices, should never be accepted. And that is the case, especially within communities or within cultures because as we've said time and time again it's people that have that have rights uh, not cultures as a abstract collective a culture as an abstract collective does not have the right to impose certain beliefs and actions on people within that cultural community um, and so whilst we should accept a variety of cultural practices within the uk we should not accept any cultural practice which claims to speak uh, for the individuals within that culture and seeks to remove their free will to act and believe as they want. And the final conclusion is something, a, a repackaging of something that we've said several times before on the podcast, which is that those the cultures are not monoliths, cultures are not homogenous. And while we can oppose certain intolerant views, we should not and we cannot equate those with different cultures. And so whilst we should uh, oppose homophobia in all its forms, homophobia exists in the Muslim community. It exists in every other community as well. It is not a Muslim problem. We should oppose it in all its forms wherever we see it, regardless of which cultures we're looking in. Um, and the sort of corollary to this is what matters is not tolerating intolerant views. The, uh, the cultural boxes that we put over the top and the cultural lenses that we uh, are often tempted to look through when looking at individual people's practices and values are really irrelevant. And what we should be doing is taking that layer away and looking underneath at the harm or benefit that people cause through their actions and looking at individual actions and beliefs and analysing those in their own terms. Whether those actions are generally more prevalent among Jewish communities or Christian communities or irreligious communities or Muslim communities is irrelevant. It is the individual action or value that matters, not the cultural pantheon with which that value is associated. And that brings this week's podcast to a close. Um, we will continue in, in future episodes with The Cultural Wars Part 3 uh, after the next uh, episode, which will be after many requests on the current situation in Cuba uh, and our interpretation on that. Uh, if you have any other questions or anything else you'd like us to deal with, any comments or criticisms, you can contact us uh, via Twitter uh, at our handle at underscore the violet underscore. You can email us at contact.theviolet at gmail.com or you can visit our website, uh, theviolet.net. Thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in next time. Mm -hmm.